Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. It has some soul to it. I can get away with a shank, or if I see a ledge that I want to drop off and get into a bucket, I will use a shank even with some weight on it. But if it's more of a classic that I've got time to set up, and then the hang down is going to be really lazy, that an unweighted tube fly, um, it just stays like up in their zone rather than laying on the bottom like a shank would. It's not like a West Coast, your rivers have soul right to the bank. So it's sort of a different thought process. That was Jeff Liske sharing his take on the tube versus the shank. Chrome bright steelhead swinging with compact spay rods and the steelhead school today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Would be amazing if you had a chance to share a past episode from this podcast, or maybe this one, if it works out for you. This is the best way we know of getting the word out for this podcast and helping uh, fellow anglers out there. So if you get a chance in most apps down the bottom, there's a little arrow button, likely click it and click that share button and uh, copy that link, share it out on text, email, whatever works for you. Thanks in advance if you had a chance to share a past episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Dalton at uh, Country Financial, who thrives on helping families and community members through the power of education and proper insurance coverage. The unexpected will happen, so it's always best to make sure your assets and life are protected. You can check out Dalton right now at wetflyswing.com country and make sure you are protected today. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing, from the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between, Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. Jeff Liske is back on the podcast to take us back into some tips on swinging flies for Lake Erie Steelhead. We find out which spay casting tips Jeff gave me on our trip to Ohio, which were huge uh, to keep me rolling along. We also get the lowdown on the plan for next year's Steelhead School trip, how that's going to be changing. We might be hitting multiple uh, locations, multiple states, maybe even. And we get a wrap-up from our guests on the on the school event at the Fireside Chat with Dave. This is uh, was a fun time. Sat around the campfire, under the stars, at the cabin, and uh, we basically talk about what it was all about at the end of this episode. That's a good, uh, pretty cool piece. And we haven't broken out that chat for a while, so this is uh, definitely going to be fun to listen to it again. So without further ado, here we go. Jeff Liskay from GreatLakesFlyFishing.com. Well, how's it going, Jeff? Great, Dave, man. Always good to hear your voice. Yeah, this is pretty fun because we, you know, we've been talking a lot about the trip and we've been talking a lot on, you know, like this and on the phone. And then to be, you know, in person, we met up and fished for basically a week. You know, we were there for a little less than a week and had an amazing trip and yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, I mean, it's more than pretty cool because it's like we connected and I think the group connected and yeah. What's your take on, you know, the trip when you look back at our, I think we had four days there, you know, it seems to me like it was a major success. What, what's, how's it look to you? 
you know, it was a major success. And just I'll go on record to let all the listeners know that you're super humble when you say I can't cast or can't fish because just to let everybody know Dave is a badass angler <laughs> and he says he can't cast a two-handed rod, but that's just uh, him being humble. But and other than that, I think it was a great success. We had our expectations of, oh my goodness, uh, Mother Nature was going to give us a kick in the stomach, but it absolutely turned out to be picture perfect day in, day out. And the rivers were declining. And so we were able to catch multiple rivers. So I think that was the key to have everybody explore a little bit of what can actually happen on the South Shores of Erie. That's right. Yeah, it was awesome because we, yeah, we were a little worried. We got there and I had a big thing with my bag, my check bag, which uh, was lost. (laughs) And that made it kind of interesting the first day. So we were scrambling the first day, but I get, it's like all these trips, there's always something that goes on, you know, right. So it's just kind of dealing with that. We got over that hump and then and then we got there and everybody there, we're going to give a shout out at the end. We did a little um, fireside chat with Dave is what my, <laughs> my friends jokingly call it. But we did a little microphone pass around the fire, which again was the perfect deal. We were out there under the stars with a campfire in the backyard at the cabin. So yeah, I can't say enough. I want to dig into a little bit on you know what we covered there, how we fished, and then we'll have a little bit of probably some more stories as we go here. But let's just start with the gear right away, because you just got off this trip, um, a kind of a photo shoot with SA. We had a photographer out, Kendrick. Shout out to Kendrick. He was amazing. He went over and above and captured a bunch of photos. And so we have all this stuff. But what was that? So SA, uh, the gear, you guys were kind of spotlighting their new gear, which is the lines we used on the trip, right? Yeah, correct. You know, everybody has their own favorite Skagit line. Um, and then as the industry goes, or you know, does this full circle and try to always reinvent the wheel, the lengths of these Skagit heads sort of match what the rod companies are sort of putting forth for us to, you know, fish. And some of the newer, I would say newer in the lineups have been like a crossover spay or, or basically like a short spay where the rod's a little shorter, but it grains, the grain window is going to be a traditionally to like a, a standard two-handed graining, not a switch rod. So we were playing around with the new Skagit Short, super compact, super short, um, and it basically takes over from the Spay Light series and starts like in the low 400s, and then it goes up into the high. It's just like a big payload delivery, and a lot of this too, Dave, is cultivating from like the King Salmon Swing up, up on your end, where you need to just turn over like logging chain T18, T20 with intermediate heads to get down. So that was a sort of request from the West Coast. And then we're sort of, you know, utilizing it, as you can see around my area, because it gets blown out in big flies. And it's just another one of those arrows in our quivers that, you know, you might need to get that head if you're thinking about that type of fishing. Yeah, that's it. So it was the Skagit Short. And I love that you said the King Salmon because we got uh, uh, George Cook coming back on and we're going to talk to him here in, in a few weeks. Actually, I think it's next week, a week from today. We're going to dig into Alaska Kings. We're going to focus on some king fishing because we've got some trips coming up next year on that. So we're going to uh, probably talk about some of these lines a little more. But so for the Skagit, so we have the Skagit short and um, and let's talk a little bit. I want to just cover the basics of the gear and, and like even flies because we had, you know, conditions to me. Sometimes you went up to those rivers and you looked at them and you're like, wow, they look like they're pretty turbid, pretty off color. And then you start fishing and realize that they're actually in pretty good shape. I mean, overall, talk about that. When do you guys fish? When is too clear and when is just right for that part of Ohio? 
Yeah, so one of the issues is Ohio and all those southern streams are runoff streams. So the turbidity comes, of course, is when we get these, you know, flushes of snow melt or rain. And one good thing is that we're learning and I'm learning on a daily basis of how much we can really push the envelope um, as far as like flow per cubic feet per second. So ideally, we want them as high as possible because it puts those fish in those transient zones, not in the, the community pools. Like as you came in, you could see that, you know, we were catching fish off of like flat shale shelves and white out in the wide open. But then as the week progressed, they started gravitating more to the community pools within two or three days. But my ultimate would be like start out at 14 inches of visibility. Um, and then right about when you can barely see your boots in knee deep water, that's when the window really opens up for us. It gives them a little little more visibility. And then as the water keeps clearing, of course, you can they're gonna start gravitating to more, you know, like we saw it's like, oh, they're gonna be here. Where those first few days we were probably fishing in areas that most people would walk by. So it's interesting how those runoff rivers, you know, fish. That's right. Yeah, the first spot we went to we fished down, we started at the top and then fished down below and hit, got into a little pod right down that pretty, not super deep water. And they were fishing, you know, they're right there and they were just like, bam, bam, bam. And then we moved over, I think later that day to another spot. Yeah, it was really cool to see because I think my expectations, I didn't know what to expect. I had, we had chatted about it and it kind of blew me away because it was way more for me, even having years of steelhead fishing over here on the West. It's just an amazing spot. You guys have this, you know, for those that don't know, I mean, I guess we're maybe trying to put Ohio on the map, at least from our <laughs> community. But I mean, it is pretty amazing. I mean, there's no, it's legit for sure. If anybody asks me about steelhead fishing, I would say that is a spot you have to go fish, right? And I mean, I guess that's nothing new to you, right? You probably have a lot of people that are saying that. Are you getting that? Do you get people from, you know, I mean, I know a lot of the crew that was there today or on our trip were from the Great Lakes. Do you get people coming from outside occasionally? We do. Yep. A lot of the, you know, the outfitters and myself, we get um, a lot of people reaching out. A lot of times they're coming into the area to visit family and they want to like test the waters. The hard part is navigating through this up and down of uh, river conditions. So that's the only thing that saves it. I mean, it's taken 20, 30 years to really like say, man, well, I got to like get a piece of this, but you could put a date on the calendar and it's not a guarantee. And I think that protects the fishery, but working with the outfitter or the guide, whoever, if you do catch those magical days, you're like, oh my goodness, like this is on. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, especially on a swung fly. It's it's not your traditional bomb it out there. You can catch it from bank to bank. It's more of a, I would think, once you think, I call it more like technical swinging. Yeah, exactly. It is technical swinging because yeah, you're sitting there and you're, you're basically, you know, same thing down and across, but sometimes you're casting out. And I think of that one run, I mean, again, some stories because I had some, everybody had amazing <laughs> stories, but I think of that one where we were on that, the big river, right? We were on the, um, on the grand, which is the bigger river. It was our first time fishing. And, you know, I was bombing one out towards the other bank, trying to bomb it out there. And, and I swung it down and I think, um, Jim, you know, you guys were ahead down below or just below me. And I was swinging right behind Jim. He had come through there and, and I swung and I got a little tap. Right. It was like, oh, and I, and I yelled out to, I was like, hey, there's a tap. And it's funny because that's another thing I didn't think I was going to get out. Right. And over here, summer steelhead, you know, anywhere you're going to get those taps and tips and little things. But so I got this and I, you know, I knew it was because I'd felt that before, put it back on it and another tap. 
right? And it was like, okay. And then I started second guessing myself. I said, wait, now, wait a minute. Is that a shelf? Is it scraping across, right? <laughs> Put the same exact cast back towards the bank. I tried to punch it right against the bank, swung it, and boom, hook up, fish on. And I'm, you know, screaming and hollering. You guys are coming up. And you get out there. Of course, you're there because you're, you're on it. You got the net and you get in. You're like, wow, that's a brown trout, right? And so did that surprise you at all when you saw that as a brown trout? It did. You know, they're stocked in Pennsylvania, but they've been a little more frequent on um, the last few years in Ohio now. So it surprised me. At first, I was like, what is it, Skipper? What is that? And all of a sudden, I was like, nope, that's a legit brown trout, you know, silver brown trout from Lake Erie. So I think we'll see more and more of those if Pennsylvania continues that stocking program. So it's pretty cool to see that overflow. It's really cool. Yeah. Well, let's finish that story. So I do that. And I went right back up. And I made, I can't remember if it was another cast or another two casts, but I hooked up again, pretty much the same spot. And it was a nice steelhead, right? It had some color on it, some nice red. You remember that moment? I do. You know, it was a double striped male, nice eight pounder, maybe, you know, solid eight pound fish and it fought. And you're like, at that point, I think you finally were like blown away about like what could possibly happen, right? But behind the scenes though, I was fishing and, um, one of the other clients pocket, you know, and, uh, we were talking about a fly change and I said, I don't mind you not changing, but I would like to maybe think about changing the fly to like maybe an orange or something. Cause we sort of figured out a little bit of orange was working. And next thing I know, I says, if he picks your pocket again, we're switching. Cause he was extremely good, you know, angler. Right. So it was like, okay. And you picked his pocket twice and it wasn't his skill set at all. It was a color thing. And uh, it just goes to show you that, you know, how you're fishing partners, right? Working a rundown. It's like you gave us the intel. It's like, nope, nope, that we got to have that fly on today or at least this run. Cool. Right. And so why was that? So why was the, uh, the orange? I think, yeah, I did have an orange on. Why that day was orange working over? I can't remember what Jim had on there. Maybe a darker one. Yeah. Jim had the classic blue, black, and, you know, he has a shank. And, you know, it was a little smaller in profile. You know, it wasn't crystal clear, right? You know, it had a little a little heartbeat. And he was getting the plucks. Like, he went down through that run and got, you know, a big, he's like, oh, there's one. We stepped back and did the traditional, like, give it to him again and angle of attack. And we tried all that. But it was just like they just weren't committing fully to that fly. So I was like, okay, you know, but it was a beautiful fly. Nine times out of ten, that fly pie would have caught a fish. Now, was it because... If we notice a lot of times in the Great Lakes, we have a little bulkier front of a fly to keep it swimming a little more. Was it the lead length of yours compared to his that um, we compared? But it was definitely the orange was one of the highlights that was in that. At least that day, some type of orange was like a hot spot, just like the old days, right? A hot spot fly. Yeah, that's it. Like egg sucking leech is your standard egg sucking leech. It pretty much works anywhere. Right. Yep. That's right. Nice. Okay. And so, yeah, fly selection, that's a good reminder though on this. So if you're not getting something and, well, I guess that's the thing you swing down. I mean, what if we're in a run and this really didn't happen, I don't think to us at all, which is, says a lot about your fishing there, but you're in a run and you don't get anything. There's no feedback, no fish, no touches, no, what are you thinking? Are you thinking, okay, is it my line, right? Is it my fly? You know, are the fish here? What's your thought process there? So usually my thought process is because, you know, we love to say that we own all these rivers, but we're sharing it with a lot of other anglers now. It's my first thought process. If we're the first ones through the pool, 
I would say, hey, what's the water temperature, right? But generally speaking, we're going to only have a very few amount of the fish that are in that run that are players for the swung fly. And I would say that usually you go through, if one angler goes through, I usually like to go through twice. You know, if it's two anglers, I'm pretty sure that mathematically that we have that water covered and they're just not going to bite. We might have to wait for the water to warm up a little bit, but once the day progresses and it's 11, 30, 12, one o'clock, and we're going to start moving around the river. If you got getting a few plucks or like you said, there's a high percentage that that fish might've been caught and released the day before angling pressure comes into a lot of part of our area there. So I've experienced that the last few days. Now the water has cleared up. They're showing themselves, but they're not committing like they were last week. Gotcha. There's a lot to think about. And the swung fly, again, goes back to that. Yeah, I mean, you could be doing other techniques. Like we saw some guys out there with like, you know, eggs and center pin reels, right? And all sorts of different ways. So there's lots of ways to catch these and maybe get more fish, right? But we are swinging flies. Uh, I mean, we're getting down with these Skagit shorts, but but we're swinging and we're not nymphing. And you also see guys swinging out in the area when the conditions are right. Are there quite a few guys nymphing out there with flies? Yeah, I would think everybody sort of gravitates to like, you know, the basic rule of thumb is I want to catch a fish. I want to catch a lot of fish. Then I want to catch big fish. Then it's like, well, I got this game. What else is there to challenge me? Right. And uh, there is a huge following now of the swung fly in my area. I think it's a challenge for everybody to learn the casts and they can incorporate it using the nymphing techniques for you know, who says that you need to do it always like swing flies. You can pick up an indicator rod, catch a fish, and then swing flies in the afternoon. So it's a great tool to have, but I have seen a huge influx in the last four to five years of anglers, you know, the swung fly approach, which is cool because they're not about the numbers anymore, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, let's circle back around. I just want to wrap up the gear because I want to make sure we touch on that. So we got the Skagit short. Let's just talk about my set because you were kind enough to let me, this is a pretty amazing the way you gave me your rod, some fishing that I got, um, I was using again, shout out to Mike at Chagrin Outfitters. These guys were amazing guides and Mike, I think it was like the third day he came up, he said, Hey, why don't you try this rod? He gave me this really sweet miser rod, right? That was just awesome. And I used that and caught a fish on it. Right. And so we had all this great gear. What was the gear you gave me that I was using that had that Skagit short? And I think there was, um, and the rod, I can't remember exactly what that was. Yeah. So, um, it was like a shorter spay. It was 11 and a half foot, seven weight Scott. And then, you know, we, we gave you the click and paw, which was great. And then we were using, usually in the winter, basically the shooting line. I like to use mono, even though it's a little harder to hold. I use the mono because it just doesn't hold the water and get your gloves wet in the cold. Oh, yeah. You know, it is a little more difficult. You have to stretch it out, of course, in the early morning to get that stretch or hopefully a big fish to stretch it out. Right. But there are drawbacks, but I sort of like it for manageability in the winter. And then at the end of the Skagit short, we were just running, depending on our flows, we were running the TC tips off the end of that. Yeah, we were using the... I think I was starting out with kind of the 10 foot tip. Let's talk about that just a little bit. So it was like a, um, a sink three, five. I can't remember what were we using. We started out with, we kind of adjusted it a little bit as we went, but what was that first line I was using or the tip? Yep. Generally speaking, um, when the flows are, you know, over 400, you're going to need somewhere like we use a sink three, sink five. And the reason why we sort of use the 10 foot tips is the Anything under 12 foot of length of rod, you can get away with a 10 foot tip. And if you start getting over 12 foot, 
then you want the 12 foot tips. But we stayed with the 10 footers. It's our go-to easy to cast. And then we did, um, that was like the, I would say the average pace water was a sink three, five. Then when we got into a few runs that were a little more aggressive, we were fishing the straight sink seven. And if you noticed that there was two schools of thought process was unweighted and weighted, I generally will prefer to be over tipped, meaning like a little heavier than normal with an unweighted fly so you can maneuver it and muscle it in and around, as you can see off those ledges like you talked about. But then once we got towards the middle or towards those greasier winter tailouts, then we dropped into uh, sink two, sink four, which is my go-to most of the time is like a when the flows are average so we probably made three tip changes i would say the course of that you know our four days there yeah and talk about and is that the essay i mean there's a lot of different lines you can get but essay has like a, a sink tip package right is that what we were using there yeah absolutely you know it starts at a floating then it goes to sink one sink two then you know two four three five and then sink seven and you could also you know break it down into any t material but if you wanted to equate in the tea material, around 55 grains of tungsten tea material. I don't care how you do it. That's for average flows. And then as the flows start getting up over 400, you want around 75 grains of tungsten. And then once they start getting up around 700, 750, you know, in that area, you better start looking at at least, you know, 100, 120 grains of tungsten get you for wintertime fishing, which is not much really. Right. And what was the, so the equivalent would be on the T, like what would be, say the T11, what would that be equal to in this series here with the SA stuff? So the equivalent of the T11 would be the sink seven, roughly about, and then you can add a little bit of weight here and there. Another cool little cheater I do too, is if we can't quite get down, if you have a 10 foot of sink seven and you're not quite down, rather than adding more tip on it, if you notice, if you remember uh, Randy, he had a full sinking Skagit intermediate. And so a lot of times, rather than wrestling with more like T14 or bigger flies, all we do is we add a intermediate sinking Skagit head and then add like a lighter tip to it to make it easier casting and stay down. So Randy was only, he was fishing an intermediate head. And he was fishing a uh, sink intermediate sink two, and he was catching as you saw just as well as Nicole did. All right, that's right. So on that first day, he was using a intermediate sinking head and then a lighter tip, and then Nicole was using just a floating line with a heavier tip. Correct, and they both caught fish. So you can play the game however you want, but I I'm not the one to put. You know, I try to keep as light as tip for castability and. Um, it's speed too, right? I think. Do you guys use much intermediate heads out west or no? Yeah, I like intermediate. I think that it kind of breaks the surface and gets you down a little bit and kind of helps. Yeah, I do like those. And um, I, I'm not even sure I've used so many different things, but that is an awesome tip. So in the essay, like you said, you can just go pick up that essay. What's that called? The essay tip? Is that just like a tip package they have? Yes, it is. It's a TC tip package and it comes in 10 or 12 foot. Okay. There it is. So if somebody, if they're listening, they can just go grab that. And, and that's cool thing. So once you get that, you got that cover. So the one, so like you said, the two, four, essentially describe that tip really quick. So what is that? So from the top, the line end to the leader end, what's that look like when you say two, four or three, five, how is that? And because isn't there a floating section on that as well? Um, you could get that too. So we do have a float sink seven, but 
traditionally um, the inches per second. So that's the numerical part of the tip system. So the back half of which connects to your Skagit head sinks two inches per second. And then the front half is four inches per second. So it gives you that bell curve, sort of like, you know, and it's one of those deals where it's more uniform and it stays down and it fishes very well. And to put it to an equivalent, the sink two four is equivalent to say like the mile five and five float sink T11. That's pretty much the equivalent. Today's episode is sponsored by Tokens Fly Shop. Tokens Fly Shop provides superior quality products at a great price. They have also a great YouTube channel that you can check out right now with uh, new fly tying tutorials each week. Tokens also has you covered if you're looking for unique in-house products, and they also support uh, many, many of the great brands out there that you know and trust. It's been fun connecting with Justin and the family uh, over the years now, and it's it's been really cool, a great local fly shop. Tokens is also offering their fly tying box where they send out materials at a regular cadence where you don't even have to think of it. You just open the mailbox and there's your Togans pack. And I recently made an order through Togans and the experience is always perfect. They've got you covered if you ever have questions or need any help, whether that's a YouTube tutorial or connecting with them uh, personally. Since 2005, Togans has been over delivering on customer service and it's time for you to check out uh, Togans Buzz for yourself. You can head over to wetflyswing.com Togans right now to check out their diverse selection of products today. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togans online. That's Togans, T-O-G-E-N-S. Okay, back to the show. So that kind of covers the gear again, and it's great because it was fun fishing it. And there were some slots that were, you know, tighter. And I think of another one we had, um, gosh, one of the rivers we fished where we had with Jim and, uh, you know, and Josh, and we kind of took turns. We were just sitting there chit-chatting, and one person got in and hit a fish. And then we just, I think we almost swapped twice, went through that. I mean, that was pretty, I mean, for me and probably for everybody, that was a pretty epic day as well. Um, I mean, are those days with the right conditions, that's not abnormal for what you guys do up there? No, no, not at all. Once you find, you know, you're hoping for that water to be super high like that, to take them to have those fish in those transition areas on those flats and those little teeny ledges that if you were to see what that looks like today. Yeah. What would that look like? No water. Oh, really? So you couldn't even fit, you wouldn't even be fishing that spot. Well, you could see to the bottom. So right after you left, you know, the bottom dropped out and literally you could see bottom in every single one of those runs that we fished. Oh, wow. So there is a musical shell game of like water level going up and down of what these fish use. It's just all about speed and temperature and are they, are they on the move? So that's pretty cool too. So this is one thing we should probably, I want you to say is that we were using 20 pound SA fluorocarbon as our leader material. And you saw that it was plenty clear enough and we could put to closure that people, I can understand in some situations where they want to line down, but did you feel that at any point that that hindered your success? No. So that was 20 pound. That was our tip, our line. Yeah. It was like basically, I mean, like you said on before 16 inches, 14 inches, but I think sometimes we were using whatever 20, but it was short tips of 20 pound fluorocarbon. I mean, no, I didn't. It was just like I was using. Typically, I, you know, I might use right eight pound, ten pound, just maxima, right, twelve pound, whatever. So twenty pound fluoro just seemed like it was exactly the same, right? Turning things over, and I guess it's probably better a little bit too for turning flies over, maybe. 
Yeah, right. And if you don't want to use a net and, you know, you can grab the line and just bring the fish in and keep it all in the water without banging it up in the net and the rocks, which, you know, but let's say, so in the Deschutes, would you say you would have to line down like on a summer run? Uh, you know, I probably not, I wouldn't be as worried about the, um, sort of spooking them, but I mean, it would be just on the action, right? So I'm not sure what would that 20 pound, uh, fluorocarbon with the action, does that give it lots of still lots of uh, movement like sort of thing? Because that's one of the things there is that we don't necessarily want a ton of action. We want to know exactly where that fly is, that it's right on the end of that tip. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think I would line down on the Deschutes myself. I would lengthen up my leader for sure. And I would line down because it's crystal clear from my experience, you know, you might line down, but I would still make sure it's strong enough that just in case you happen to connect with one of those B runs, you don't have an industrial accident, right? <laughs> no, exactly. That's never fun. <laughs> and we did, you know, we didn't have too many industrial, ac- well, we had probably a few, but on the trip because you were there, did we have any this week? We did have only a few bring us to our knees, like where they just ripped it in the big boil with Nicole. Oh yeah. We both were just like, oh my goodness, like we wish we would have seen that fish type deal, but that happens, right? That happens. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Cool. So, <laughs> so yeah, so I'm glad you said that. So 20 pound fluorocarbon, we were using that as our tip and our tippets were like, what were they? Yeah. They're pretty much in that 20 inch range, right? Somewhere in there. Yeah. Right. We fished anywhere from, you know, I would say two foot to 14 inches, depending on the lip and the ledges and stuff. We kept it pretty close. Yeah, Exactly. I can't say enough about, I mean, we could sit here and go, the great thing about this is, is that when we first went into this, Jeff, you know, we were like, okay, if this trip, even if it's a total failure, it's going to be so amazing because we're going to get a fish together. And now circling back, we're sitting here talking again, you know, away across the country, but we fished together. You know what I mean? And for me, that was what it was all about, you know, that and connecting with everybody on the trip. I mean, how's it look for you when you look at this thing we did? It was a little bit new, you know, you put a lot, I will say, let me give it props to you. You you were like so well and above, far and above, like the effort you put into this was as high as it gets. And I think that says a lot about you and, you know, who you are. But, you know, I mean, how does it look to you? Does it look like, obviously, there's a lot of work there, but does this look like something you would be good doing again? Oh, absolutely. Hats off to you because this is, you're probably one of the first West Coast anglers to basically, you know, break the bridge of Midwest to West Coast. And I'm sure that it's going to be like, we're going to do this multiple times um, again as a class and just, you're going to come out and fish and explore this area again. But the camaraderie of getting, you know, X amount of people, seven, eight, 10 people underneath the same roof and watching them like interact with like tying flies and they were almost like networking, teaching each other. And I think that was such a valuable tool is like, you know, you have Josh from Minnesota, then you've got Nicole, who's diversed in Atlantic salmon, and they were chit-chatting and sharing things in the evening. It was unbelievable how the Spafe community family, they just mesh and just have such great camaraderie. There's no, hey, I'm better than you. And I think that to me and watching your face, like when you get that grab and I hear this, oh my, you know, blank, blank, blank. <laughs> That's what impacts me, right? Yeah. Or just watching somebody when they they swing and you say, hey, it's going to happen now. And the rod just gets pulled out of their hand. You're like, oh, my goodness. It's worth every minute of planning that me and you did. Yeah, that's great to hear. And I think that is the thing. I mean, everybody there. And I remember Jim the last day. I mean, he was up there. I think he got a fish. But then he was almost acting like as our guide. I mean, it just shows you, right? He was up there like coaching, talking to Nicole and letting people, you know, everybody go through. So 
And I really, you know, ultimate, and I'm going to do at the end of this, it's going to be cool because we did that fireside chat. I'm going to put in the audio file for that and what the trip meant to everybody that was there. But one person who wasn't there on that fireside chat was Boris. And I want to give Boris a big shout out because, I mean, that guy, you know, first of all, was amazing. He was there like a day or so. And then he had kind of a a health injury and he had to leave. And he came to me that morning and said, Dave, you know, I got to leave, but I appreciate every minute of this. This has been, you know, and so... Talk about that with Boris, because I know you know him a little bit. It seems like everybody was similar to Boris. I mean, was this just a unique thing that we lucked out and had this amazing group of people? Or is it just like you said, is this just the community that we're in? I think it's just a community we're in. And, you know, as far as Boris, you won't find a generally kinder soul on planet Earth. He's the ultimate, like, client. He's the ultimate friend. He doesn't put value on catching a fish. He puts value on the experience of the day and maybe improving his casting and a few tips and then sharing sharing what he knows and what his passion is to others. But yeah, you won't you won't find anybody nicer to spend the day on the water with. And uh, it's very sad that you know he had a little bit of uh, health that came in unexpectedly, but we will make it up to him tenfolds. And uh, my prayers are out to him. He's actually doing okay, so which is good to know. Good. That's good to hear. Yeah. We'll circle back around for sure with him. And then um, this trip, I mean, we obviously, we've had a couple of these episodes where we've talked about this and we're going to have more because I think, you know, for what we're doing here, it's like you, you know, are very good about, you know, getting into these tips and some of the stuff that we don't think about. What are, you know, on that week, anything else we want to kind of just give a shout out to as far as if somebody's listening here and they're thinking about putting a trip together to that part of Steelhead Alley. I mean, because you have Ohio, you kind of also have Pennsylvania and even New York, right? But your focus for the most part is Ohio. Is that pretty much 90% of your time there? It is. Um, I've tried to narrow it down and I've actually like really trying to focus on like catching them out in the lake, stripping streamers along with the swung fly. But I think you have to look at um, the Great Lakes area as a whole because, you know, you have ground fed streams in Michigan where you're actually spay casting off of a boat all day. You've got wild fisheries that are over New York that are off the Cattaraugus. So, you know, you could even swing flies from shore on the Niagara River. So it would probably take you your lifetime, like myself, to explore it all. But they all have their own unique characteristics. But I will say planning a trip be expected to be mobile. Like at any given time, you know, you might say, I want to fish Ohio, but you might have to cross the border to PA where the water conditions are a little bit better and deal with, you know, a higher angler count per acre of running water. You could also, like we talked about is maybe this next class is we're not just going to stay in Ohio. We might start in New York and work our way up into Michigan and end up the class in like a, a multi like steelhead bus school or something, you know, load up in a big van and just because it's all different, Dave, and it's pretty cool. Just like your fisheries are all different, correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, this is great. I love that you brought that up because it just, everything kind of comes together. The school, right, is, you know, it's kind of a marketing piece, but it really is about a school. It's about teaching and taking a little more than just a guide trip, right? Just a one-day guide trip. But the bus analogy is funny, too, because, right, let's hop on the school bus and let's take a tour around steelhead alley because i mean that sounds really amazing we had our you know ohio i could spend another week there easy but you know i'd love to fish pennsylvania i'd love to fish new york michigan right everything with i mean all the stuff so you know i'm gonna put a shout out and we'll have this in the show notes wetflyswing.com slash steelhead school 
we'll have a link there where people can sign up if they want or if they're interested in this and at least it gets them in because i know i know some of the people that were on this trip are coming back probably next year so there's going to be limited slots but we're going to do this again and for those that are listening now that want to get involved in this um, and we'll have more information on what that looks like but i like it so we start with a bus and we kind of hit a different river depending on the conditions right so we just spread it out a little bit yeah right that's what i like to do is i have no agenda like you look at the flows and you say okay we're in new york what's available and if you know whatever river is available we're going to work with the outfitters and guides that are in that area and let them make the choices and just see you know what the day brings right just like you saw it's like every day was a new adventure like oh we're going to go here we can go over there we spread it we all spread out right it's pretty cool yeah yeah good and so you mentioned outfitters let's just dig into that just for a second give a shout out to everybody because you know, we started with the bag. The bag was gone. I had no clothes. So I had to literally go out and get clothes. We stopped by the backpackers. Talk about that place because I know you have a connection with them and then talk about a few of the other folks that helped us out there along the way. Yeah. So, you know, we get off the plane and you get off the plane, no luggage. And then my home shop, the backpacker shop, which is noted for more of a soft goods and backpacking and outdoor shop, but it has a wonderful fly fishing community center in the back. And I grew up with the owner, Reese uh, Fabro. So we walk in there and was like, help. And so literally, you know, you ended up getting some swag money from the airplane guys. And then he ends up giving you his waiters. We used his waiters, brand new Panagonias. And then you ended up getting, you know, using some of my boots that had studs because it was slippery as the Dickens. And thanks to him, because he ends up setting us up. And then Dan at Sugar River Outfitters runs just a really good outfitting guiding service he does you know a daily basis he can have anywhere from one to five guides on the water and they just they do a really outstanding job they were there every day on point no like you know i'm late and their personalities just even on a slow fishing day which as you know can get pretty slow swinging flies they were able to maintain top level entertainment which really helped out it did it did you know they were all yeah dan and uh Mike and uh, Justin, right, were the, uh, the three folks we had. And then we also had uh, Jerry, which was awesome because we had him on the podcast a while back. So Jerry was there. That was pretty cool as well. He helps you out occasionally when you get a kind of events like this. He does. Yeah. Jerry um, is retired, you know, sales rep and fly fishing, 40 plus years in the fly fishing industry, but now is more noted as an author now. And then he, he helps out a lot with me, even for like the basic fly fishing classes, because he's just you know, wonderful caster and a wealth of knowledge that me and you can both only wish we knew about fly fishing. So it was a great asset to have JD on board and just, he was sort of our anchor person, like fly tying and just chit chatting and taking the cold to Pennsylvania. And it was just great. Yeah, it was. And that's Jerry Darkest. So we've had him on, I'll put a link to the episode we had with him quite a while ago. Let's dig in really quickly to flies because we have, you know, we've used a bunch of different things and you've always had a, you know, tube flies, shanks, there's all sorts of things. Talk about, let's say again, somebody's out there and, and right now I guess we're in December, so things are slowing down right a little bit. What does that look like? Let's dig in that real quick, then we'll get to flies. So as far as the seasons, you know, as we speak, we're the week before Christmas. Is fishing still possible over there or what's that look like? Yep. So the window's going to close Thursday night. And this is very traditional. I would say on, from Thanksgiving to the second week of December is like pretty classic time to go. And Mother Nature dictates it. But Thursday night's going down to 15 degrees. And we got the teens going to be at least for three or four days. So the rivers are actually going to slush over, Dave. There won't be any fishing. But up until then, we've got, you know, high 30s. Today I'm off 
just because it's a high of 31 and who wants to like dig ice out of their guides all day. But um, we're going to have a window starting again Sunday a little bit and then Monday not, but then Tuesday, Wednesday's the pick days. But then after that, it's going to be sort of like a day by day, watch the weather. And we could actually have a freeze up for two months. Oh, wow. Yeah, we could actually say there's no fishing here until the middle of February. But as you know, climate change, we've been pretty blessed of getting some thaws. And then it could be, I'll pick up the phone and say, you need to get here now. So until the second or third week of February, it's sort of a hit or miss play the weather game. Gotcha. So that's the cool thing about what you have going, or maybe even somebody who's listening, if they're out around, they want to do this, they could they could potentially call you and say, hey, I want to do a trip. And then you could like give somebody a heads up and be like, okay, it's go time and just come up and do it now. Yeah. I call it on the bench. I probably got three or four, you know, right now that's sort of on the bench for January, February. And if we see temperatures that are going to be in the mid to upper thirties or like low forties, we'll be on it like a monkey on a banana. Yeah. Awesome. And then when does it pop back out where things are like, okay, we're kind of go time again. It's open. When's that happen? I would say it could be anywhere from the 1st of March, but traditionally we've had some colder marches and warmer falls. So I would say March 12th is my window of when I would say it's ready to go. That's like for sure what I've seen lately. Today's episode is sponsored by Zag.Fish, who was founded with the idea of finding ethical solutions to fly tying products and services. They've done just that by creating jobs for marginalized people, both in the U.S. and abroad. They've got uh, everything covered. We've had a recent episode on with uh, John Grosta, who talked about uh, some of the great products they have with the, the fishing he does in Florida, uh, with the Fairflies brushes. They've got the 5D brushes and their uh, fly fur, which is pretty amazing. Tons of people are loving this stuff for its durability and the speed that allows you to tie flies. John talked about that on the podcast. Uh, and he said that just uh, basically it's going to add on at least 15 to 20 minutes to uh, each fly you tie if you're not using these brushes. Zag also has uh, Wasatch custom angling tools in their satchel with over 50 uh, custom heirloom tools that go along with your materials. So they are a true do-it-yourself company and you got to check out zag.fish right now. If you want to, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash zag and you can get 20% off your first order by clicking through that link and uh, let them know you heard uh, of them through this podcast and you'll get that 20% discount right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash zag, Z-A-G. Okay, back to the show. And are you guys now, when you turn around the corner, so we were hitting it towards the end, right? December. So in March, what's that look like? I mean, our steelhead, is that still an equal sort of thing? Fishing? I'm not even sure on that end. Yeah. So it basically, we were fishing for um, winter fall run fish. And they were actually, a few fish were done spawning already that we, we didn't encounter, but they were in the river system. But most of those fish will be gone. And then we get a spring run, which Ohio in previous years, you know, little manistee and stuff that we have a pretty good spring run and it's good swing fishing up until I would say April when these fish decide to like, you know, try to spawn on the gravel and then you can still do it then because at that point you're going to have some residual fish that are done spawning that are holding in the runs. 
and um, you don't have to rake gravel or anything. You can still swing a fly in the in the runs for the drop back fish. But by the end of April, going into Mother's Day, most people sort of forget this area. But I'll go on record that if you want to catch one on the dry fly or you want to catch a lake run smallmouth and you're not opposed to catching downstreamers, it's a great time to do it because a lot of people are focused on warm water fish and their houses and stuff. And there's a pretty good window. As long as the water temperatures stay below 68 and hover in those low 60s, it could be phenomenal fishing. Oh, wow. So there's your chance to get a, uh, to maybe skate up a steelhead or some other species. Correct. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. So when do you, on your program, so you've got this big boat, right? So you're out there in the lake, which again, we've been talking about the rivers, but the Great Lakes, obviously, I mean, this is a pretty spectacular, you know, flying in and on the airplane. It's my first time. This is my first time in the Great Lakes and flying over it, over the lakes. And it's just like, right, it's this whole another world. But talk about that. What do you got going with your boat program? So, you know, I'm a guy like you. I love to just keep exploring and that. And I try to stay in the river as long as I can. But I will go on record that, it, you know, at Isau, coming in around April, some of the best fishing is on the big lake. A lot of seasons are closed, but there are some seasons that we're allowed to fish pre-spawn fish. And it's some great fishing, like smallmouth and the steelhead are starting to, you know, they filter outside the harbors and I can't tell you, there's almost every species of swims we could probably target. And I'm not have it completely dialed in. I do pretty good. But by May, I'm on the lake full time and the rivers are pretty much, they're warmer, the bass fishing are there. And so I'm out on the lake. Yeah, it's really cool. The whole thing about that warm temperature, because these fish, yeah, I mean, they're not in there. So when you think of, and that's kind of interesting. I mean, I'm not even sure. So you think about these steelhead, right? So they come up in there. And these are essentially wild steelhead, right? Or talk about that a little bit, the hatchery versus wild, what's going on there? You know, Ohio really doesn't have any documented wild fish, which means, you know, self-reproducing. I'm sure there's a few, but we, in Michigan, um, there is a self-sustaining population in Michigan, Wisconsin, and New York. Pennsylvania probably has a few, but it's undocumented. But the Canadian shoreline of Lake Erie there is a wild population up on the Grand River on the north shores of Lake Erie that's documented up on the Grand. Larry Halick, you know, the ex-biologist, they've documented that they're self-sustaining along with the hatchery program. But, you know, we're way over a one and a half million, you know, rainbow stocked with some steelhead background along the south shores of Lake Erie. So you can only imagine why we catch the catch rate we do. Right. So basically that's the thing. So they come in like when we were there in December, they're coming in, but by the time you circle around, you know, they're trying to maybe spawn in there a little bit, but for the most part, the water temperature is going to warm up in, you know, the summertime too warm, where there's no juvenile fish. There's nothing in that river that are of steelhead. Correct. There are a few areas that the temperatures in some of the feeder creeks that are shaded, you know, it's undocumented yet, Dave. Yeah. Because sometimes you get these fish are like, wait a minute, we got way too many fish, right? That are coming in. Just like the king salmon, you know, basically up in the Michigan and Lake Huron, they weren't predicting so many naturally producing king salmon on the Canadian side, and it actually exploded, and the bait fish collapsed there. So it's a, it's a musical chair game of you know managing these hatcheries. But Ohio's only allowed to stock four hundred thousand. That's our limit, which is still astronomical, right? Right. So that's what's going on. So basically, each year they're stocking four hundred thousand fish out into these well in the rivers, essentially. Yeah, I guess there's a whole bunch of a uh, whole process here, but the point being is that there's a there's a crap load of fish coming back. That's what I understand. <laughs> a crap load of fish 
and I will say we've, because of COVID, we were, the Division of Wildlife for Ohio had to go researching in other directions to get the eggs. So we reached out to Wisconsin and New York and every place, and we got the Wisconsin strain um, that they're using, and they seem to be a little more grabby, I will say, than some of the other strains. And I'm not sure if it's just water flow, this part I'm not sure, but in general, some of us guides have realized that they're a little more grabby. Yeah, that's it. And Wisconsin, well, listen, I'm trying to think now, Josh, Wisconsin or Minnesota? He's Minnesota, but he is fishing uh, Wisconsin. That's right. Essentially, some of the fish that he was catching in Ohio were probably kind of from the strain he knows of up in his hometown. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, something to compare apples to apples. And, you know, just like you with your hatchery program back and forth, sure, you see a little difference, right? Yeah. Like like I say, and that's for me, you know, I have a home water here that's small, very similar to some of the small rivers we fish. And I'm excited. Well, that's the thing. So right now I'm in the lookout, so I got to get my gear together. I need to get a, I need to get 11 half foot rod. Talk about that. So the 11 half foot rod versus say a 12 foot rod, you know, the shorter rod. So why the shorter rod in these streams? Why do you like the 11 half foot say versus a 12 or even longer or shorter? Well, A, if you can see the canopy, you know, the backdrop in the trees behind you, you can, and then maybe working underneath trees. I like it because the ratio of these newer, the newer Skagit heads, they keep getting shorter and shorter and shorter, right? Which means, you know, A, your strokes compact, but that means your D loop doesn't have to be as large as you would be if you're fishing, say, a 40 foot plus head. Where the chute, you've got some room to open up where you can see it can get pretty intimate on these little runoff streams or anywhere I fish, even in the OP or whatever. I can get underneath these tricky fishing situations and deliver a big payload. Is it going to be like a front of a catalog tight loop? No. But is it going to get out there and do the job? Absolutely. That's sort of why I like it. And good control. And, you know, that little shorter rod, um, you could add some pretty serious pressure to those fish, just like that saltwater. So in general, I sort of, I've gravitated to little shorter rods over the years. Yeah, that's right. And it is nice. It's uh, And yeah, you can cast, I mean, that shorter rod pretty much as far as you can the longer rod, right? Because everything's balanced and the head's shorter and things like that. But everything seems to work uh, very similarly to if you had a longer, right, longer skagit or longer rod. Yeah, absolutely. People think that a skagit cast is a spade cast and it's really not. It's a tactical two-handed cast. It's like casting a bullet, right? And if you got, you know, a short grain or a long grain bullet, it doesn't matter. It's the same projectile. And Jerry French and some of the, you know, the founders of all this and Ward and all them guys, they frontiered it. And we've just sort of like basically jumped on their bandwagon and utilized their wealth of knowledge to our advantage, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing. And it's just perfectly for that, you know, for your area, it's working well. Well, let's do a couple. I want to just take it out a little bit of a casting thing and then a little bit of the fishing part of it. So, you know, we're sitting there, you came up, I was um, kind of having a couple of struggles getting things. Talk about that. When you came up there, you gave me a couple of tips that were part of on the kind of the swing through. Um, I don't know if you remember that moment, but it helped quite a bit to get me thinking about some stuff I was doing wrong. First, do you find that that's an equal part of what you do as a guide out there to helping with the casting and then talk about how you helped me there that day? I think I'm probably noted more as like a hands-on instructor and I'm a pretty good guide, but there's guides that are way better than myself. Not that I don't know the water, but I feel that, you know, I really enjoy looking at somebody's casting and 
each individual has their own personality and their own stroke. And I don't want to change it. Just point out little bullet points with their personality to improve their casting where they don't wear themselves out. Right. The one me and you talked about was, is that, you know, when you make your lift, that's the most crucial part of the cast. And then the one I really like is everybody has a tendency after you make the lift and you make your set to your anchor, when you're clearing the line or sweeping, everybody has a tendency to use the top hand to pull it into the D loop rather than rotating the body. And I think that it would be the number one thing that is body rotation, that if you just let your body rotate and fill the D loop and raise the rod, that's going to be the entire cask. And if you just rotate your body, you could do it all day, seven days a week, where if you pull with your arm, fatigue is going to set in and your casting will definitely deteriorate as the day goes on. I think that's what we discussed when we were hanging. Yeah, that's right. That's what it was. So I'm you know, you're sitting there, your, your feet are pointing towards where you're going to cast and you're getting set up. You do your lift, you bring it through. And then after you bring it through, you set up your anchor. Instead of just moving your arms, which you could do, you can move your arms and then cast. You actually keep your arms stationary and move and swing your whole, rotate your body to get into the casting position. And then that sets you up for success. Basically, that sets up your D-loop. That does everything, and then you just do everything the same. And, and that's what you gave me there. And I again, it says one little tiny tip. I mean, that's actually a huge tip, but it got me thinking for the next rest of the day, rest of the trip that I was always, okay. And that's what's fun about spay, I think. Maybe that, that's probably just fly fishing, right? You can just work on one little thing and try to get that. You can spend a whole trip working on that. Yeah. What do you think the first question is that I ask a client when we step into the water if I don't know them? Oh, right. If you don't know them. Um, man, I don't know. I would say something, yeah, like casting. What would be, um, you know, how comfortable are you with casting or what's your spay look like? Right. So my first question is, what is a spade cast? And then that gives them an idea. Then my second question, before we even wet a line, is where is the energy of a cast, a two-handed cast? And 99% of the time they say, oh, it's in the forward stroke, how hard I hit it. Then they, and I was like, well, when you relay it to say all of it, energy stored in that D-loop and explain to them that without the D-loop, the cast fails. And they're like, oh, and that the light bulb, and so for the rest of the day, we just, I call it building the D-loop. How do you build the D-loop? And that's, once you get that, everything's downhill. That's it. And that's the same thing for me is that that's one of my struggles. And we talked about that, that I wasn't building that D-loop and that was part of the thing. So that's always going to be something, you know, something I'll work on here as well. And, you know, Josh, again, shout out to Josh Larry the Locker because we had a little <laughs> situation there at the, at the car. Josh was this amazing, you know, amazing guy. And but uh, he's a guide up there, right up north of you. And um, but it was like, okay, what is a spay? What is a sketch? And I think you know he had a rough morning or a rough night before. <laughs> Anyways, it was it was a great moment because um, you know I mean it is some people. Everybody like a lot of people think spay gadget, same thing. But really, the difference is give us that so we can get on record to talk about the spay versus gadget. What is the difference? So the spay cast has you know it's a much larger line. There's a little bit of a pause because the line is longer. And when you sweep into the D loop, you have to pause to allow that length of line to form in the D loop, right? And the longer the line, there's a little more of a pause. And we're talking like split seconds, right? Yeah. But it's almost like slow motion. If you ever watch Spayorama, they punch it into the D loop and there's a little pause to that line form. But with the Skagit, it's pretty much just, you know, low, high, go. Just keep things moving. 
and just form that D loop, raise that rod, let the D loop pretty much form under the rod and then just go ahead and make your forward stroke at the acceleration. I call Skagit casting like controlled chaos, <laughs> you know, rather than that waltz of dance, right? It's like you're throwing logging chain. It's not much taper to it. So it's, you got to be a little more, I would say, uh, deliberate with your moves, right? How would you consider that? Maybe what's your intake on that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm always thinking about that as like the transfer of energy. So I always feel like if I'm doing it smooth and transferring and then the whole thing, right? Because that's where it breaks down for me when I'm not keeping it flowing, I'm stopping or something like that. So that definitely resonates for sure. And uh, yeah, it's, I mean, heavy, I mean, you're the idea being that you can cast heavy flies, although we weren't really casting. That's the cool thing about the Skagit stuff we were doing. We weren't really casting gigantic flies for the most part, right? So let's talk that fly just real quick as we start to take it out of here. What were the flies typically, the style, the weight? Like, what did we have on there this week? You know, I think we had across the board, but in general, we had a fly that was probably in and around the length of, you know, say, two and a half to three and a half inches. We had perfect water conditions, so we didn't have to fish outside the box. And then as far as profile went, We did have larger profile flies, if you noticed. It it had a little bulk to it, like you said, the egg-sucking leech. Mike has, uh, he uses the, you know, Blaine Chocolate's body tubing, and he props it up. One of my flies, I put like an earplug in the middle just to give it the illusion of a profile, but yet make it easy to cast and shed water with the new synthetic materials. And Josh is, you know, he was tying some epic flies and then he sort of was doing like that two stage flies, but he always had a little hot spot in there, if you noticed, right? Mm, yep. That orange, you know, that seemed to be Halloween, I would say was one of our go-to. We had this discussion before, but that was one of the contrasting colors that is pretty go-to. I love that. And I always love to give a shout out to my old man because, uh, you know, you, I think we asked, we had that conversation about the colors that night. And that was one of the cool things about the schools that we're all sitting around there in the evening. And somebody has a question about, I think Boris brought up something about, you know, the flies and we started getting, okay, what is the color? What is your one go-to color? And, and orange is one of those ones that, you know, my old man, that was a fly. He kind of, you know, patterned on the Deschutes, the orange and black. And then it's also one that's just orange. It's like a fly. I mean, red works too. It all works, but Orange seems to be that one that's, I don't know, why do you think that is? Why do you think orange is one of those colors? You know, I think it's just um, like the cat and mouse game, right? We we can get a fish to move on it. We can also, if it's coming into their awareness zone and they're like, I'm not having it, we push them back and then eventually we might get a territorial strike out of it. Do we really know what they think orange is? I don't know, but I go back into the classic fly patterns that always had the the hot spot tagged ends, right? Oh, yeah. In the butt, you know? Yep. So I feel that somewhere, either that chartreuse or fluorescent oranges, it's sort of like the, you know, the signal light fly, right? Just, hey, here I am. Eat it, Joe's. I'm going to see. Let me taste this. Let me see what it is type deal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, the classic, if you go back to the classic, like uh, wet flies, you know, the whether it's the Max Canyon, the Signal Light, the Green Butt Skunk. Right. They all had that little, like, little tag. Well, it's more than a tag. It was a butt end of them. But now, like, with the stuff we're using, it's not really the butt necessarily. It's more kind of the egg sucking. Do you think that matters? Why, say, the egg sucking versus a splash in the butt? Um, I think the way we tie it, you know, how we tie it, reverse tie, you know, and it's, your, our classic egg-sucking leech was always with the chenille. Now we're using it with synthetic ice dubbing and laser dubbing and stuff, and it's a bigger head. 
And I do think it, you know, everybody says, oh, it's pushing water because they can feel it. Well, I'm not a belief in this pushing water. They can feel it. I believe that it keeps the fly moving in the slower water pockets. And then when it hits the faster pockets, it kicks a little more and it gets a little more action. Then when it gets into those tanky, greasy, you know, basically couchy waters where those fish are laying, it has a little more like movement to it. It doesn't stay on the bottom like a shank would. So I think that's pretty important. Yeah, that's right. So shanks, shanks versus tube. Let's go there just for a second because we use both, you know, definitely the tubes. What is your go-to? I mean, do you use both one or the other? I do. So if the water has some soul to it on the dangle, meaning that if I can keep that fly up off the bottom and let it marinate in these colder water temperatures that we were fishing, if it has some soul to it, I can get away with a shank. Or if I see a ledge that I want to drop off and get into a bucket, I will use a shank even with some weight on it. But if it's more of a classic that I've got time to set up and then the hang down is going to be really lazy, feel that an unweighted tube fly, it just stays like up in their zone rather than laying on the bottom like a shank would. It's not like a West Coast, your rivers have soul right to the bank. So it's sort of a different thought process with Ohio. That's cool. Yeah. So that's it. It's the really, yeah. How much, what do you want that fly to do? And you definitely, you definitely don't want that fly sitting on the bottom. I mean, that's, that's like, I mean, those fish are down there, but they're definitely looking up, right? They're not looking down. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, this is, uh, this has been another awesome one. I think, um, you know, we've touched on a few tips. I think the trip again, I wanted to, you know, kind of circle up. I want to have here in a second, we're going to add the audio, like we said, of just everybody in the group and, and we'll let everybody else tell their story of what the trip meant to them. I mean, for me, you know, I think I said it, it meant, you know, me connecting with you, connecting with your whole crew out there, right? Getting to the Great Lakes and just saying, hey, is this something we want to do again? And there's no question that this is uh, like, you know, for sure an annual thing, you know, something that I'm going to be looking forward to. Anything else before we get out here? I, I'm not sure when we're going to do the next one. I mean, I know we're going to do more podcasts with you, but um, between now and maybe the next Steelhead School, um, do you want to give any shout out to anything else you have going just, you know, between now and then? No, I mean, I think right now we've had quite a few podcasts. I'd like, you know, if anybody has any questions about lines or any rods or anything, feel free to reach out to Dave and I, and, um, I'm sure if we don't know the answer, we can definitely get the answers for your area or whatever. I really greatly appreciate the listen. And mainly to Dave is just, thanks for everybody who basically just said, Hey, we're going to take a stab at this school. I just want to thank all my mentors over the years that, you know, taught me everything from day one and put me where I'm at now for my learning curve. I just greatly appreciate everybody from West Coast to East Coast to the Midwest. That's about it. And you for coming out. For sure. Yeah, this is uh, I'm excited about. It. I'm excited to tell more of the uh, more of the stories as we I find myself doing that on another podcast. Right. I'm sitting there. And of course, it's a, it was an epic trip. So I find myself telling stories around <laughs> that. And we're, we're going to have more of those as we go, because it's I can't even we shed light on some of them. But um, you know what I mean? We didn't get them all out there. So I think as we go, we'll talk more about it. And then we'll just look forward to catching up with you here as we start to get ready. You know, again, it's going to be the new year and we're probably in a few months going to be thinking about, okay, let's make sure we're planned and ready to go for Steelhead School, you know, 2023. Yep, it's penciled in already. <laughs> it is. It is. We already got it in. We just got to get the school. We got to find the school bus. Then we'll be good to go. I'm going to buy one next week. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jeff. Thanks for all the time. You too, Dave. Thanks, man. All right. So Dave here, Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Fireside chat with Dave is what this is. 
which is perfect. I mean, the fact that we have a fire here is pretty much. So we're going to do a quick little wrap up with everybody who was on the Steelhead School uh, on the trip here. And we're going to talk about what uh, just whatever comes to your mind about something you remember. Maybe maybe you will remember from this trip or anything. We're going to start with Jim here. So, yeah, this is probably one of the, the best Steelhead trips I've ever, ever been on. And, you know, learning about the rivers in Ohio and learning the little the tricks of the trade and the waters and all the, the little hints that, you know, it takes forever to really learn. It was like, you know, I kind of said it before, it's almost like five years of knowledge, of hard knowledge, you know, smashed into four, four days um, and just really excited to be here and had a great time and, you know, fishing with, with Jeff and Justin and, and Mike and all, all, the, all the different guides that know the area and have learned all that. Um, it's been quite a great experience and I, I, thanks for putting it all together and love to do it again and I recommend it to anybody that is interested in swinging flies for a steelhead. It's pretty amazing. So. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. Bill? I probably had my, uh, what's going to be my fondest steelhead remembrance ever because the run by the bridge where Jeff said, okay, you're right there. There's got to be a fish there. You're right there. And I'm thinking, great, Jeff. So if I don't catch this fish, whose fault is that? But sure enough, the fish was right where Jeff said it was. I hooked it, and then I thought, well, now I have about seven people, including several certified experts, a video camera, a professional photographer, and I'm standing there fighting this fish thinking, please stay on. If I don't catch another fish in my life, I need this fish. Because I cannot take the, you turn around, and there's always that look on the guide's face like, oh, that's okay, we'll get the next one. And I could not have stood it if that. (laughs) So I'll remember that probably forever. I'll remember that too. I was there, I saw that. Oh yeah, it was, I told my wife, it's like, I'm not a really a, not a real public person, but to turn around and there's all these people watching and it's like, okay, now you have to do your thing. <laughs> you yep. Talk about it, you think about it, but now you got to perform. Amazing. So that was, uh, that was my fondest memory of the trip so far. Awesome. It's been great. Thanks, Bill. All right, Randy? For me, it's a bucket list trip, learning, meeting new people, new experiences, new friends. And I've enjoyed every minute of it even when it was painful. (laughs) Uh, First, I'd like to thank Dave and Jeff and all the other guides, um, Jerry Dart, Dan Burbanek as well, and uh, Justin Burbanek. And uh, yeah, I only started steelheading this April on the Lake Ontario trips on the Canadian side, and I came, I drove six and a half hours to be here. And you know what? It was everything it exceeded my expectations and I had an amazing time and the fishing was spectacular we lucked out with the weather and uh, you know like Jim said there's just so much learning and it wasn't just from the guides Um, we supported each other and you know everybody was sharing tips and it was an amazing experience I think it was my best fishing trip ever and uh, yeah thank you all for this just loved it um yeah the last last few days have been been epic i flew out here from minneapolis not knowing what to expect with you know the weather and the river levels and it being cold and 
it turns out this time of year in, in Ohio, the steelhead are really putting the feed bags on. <laughs> you know, I was not expecting for kind of everyone, the whole group as a whole, to, you know, get that many grabs and, and connections and, and some awesome fish the entire time. All the guides were incredible. Um, it was awesome, you know, meeting Jerry Darkus and, and Jeff Lesquet and Dave and, and everyone here, really. Um, the food was incredible. We had a, a chef, Tyler, um, who kind of knocked it out of the park, you know, with every meal and everything was taken care of. Um, say, you know, from a hospitality standpoint, like top notch. I definitely want to come and do this again next year for sure. Um, learned a lot as far as casting goes and you know, and, and proving my own casting game and, and just watching and learning different techniques from everyone else. And, yeah, it's been a great trip. So thank you, everyone. Yeah, I, you know, I, Dave, I'd like to really thank you. You know, you're, uh, you're probably the first, I would say, host or angler or I would say celebrity that comes to the Midwest. You know, normally it's uh, divided, like Midwest, West Coast, right? But you came here and you probably had some, you know, unexpected things that happened like wow it, this is true you hear stories right but it is and it's not always good fishing it's always not good weather but it's not like that everywhere right but uh, I want to thank everybody who joined us this week you know their skill sets were unbelievable the personalities all got along and I'm really looking forward to doing this with you Dave again and um, just hats off for you to come on out and I think I think we learned from you and we learned from everybody here you know, so looking forward for it next year, maybe. All right, and uh, everybody said it all tonight. I'll follow up a little more with it, but for me, it's hard to say because this has been such a buildup since the first episode we did, 255, you know, a couple years ago, and all the people before, Pete Humphreys. Yes. I listened to that episode this week, episode seven, five years ago almost to the, you know, your mentor, one of your mentors. Yeah. I had him on the podcast, and I think that's maybe where I tracked you down. It might have been from Pete, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I just wanted to say thanks to everybody for, you know, kind of uh, just jumping in and, you know, really taking a chance, right? You never know. You kind of trust. You know, I mean, I trusted. I knew, you know, Jeff, your, your reputation. That's what I was going by. I wanted to make an opportunity, experience for everybody that would be, you know, second to, you know, just, and it is. It's been everything I, I expected and more. So thanks everyone for coming and I am excited for 2023. <laughs> so there it is. Wetflyswing.com slash 399. 399 is going to get you some show notes, some links, some of the other good stuff we talked about today and a good chance to take this episode a little bit further. Quick listener shout out before we get out of here. Domingo from San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we're giving a shout out to Domingo, uh, member society shout out. He's been supporting uh, this podcast in the past, and I just want to give Domingo a shout out as we're rolling around to some of the people who have connected with us earlier on, getting this thing rolling, and want to say appreciate Domingo if you're listening today in advance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, a good way to do it is to click over through our sponsors' websites. That's the easiest way to click there, check out what they have going if you have a chance to purchase. I want to thank you in advance and let you know you're supporting small businesses, this podcast, all in one easy click. If you have an idea for a show topic, you can check with me anytime, Dave at wetflyswing.com or on social. Let me know. I'd love to hear what you have going. And if you've been listening, you haven't connected with me yet, now's your shot. Now's your shot. Give it a shot right now and let me know you're listening. 
and uh, and I'll try to put together an episode for you. I likely will put together an episode if you check in with me. All right, we're getting out of here, but before we do, I want to see what we have going up next, what we have coming up next, going down next. Next on the docket, we got, what are we at? I mean, we're 399, so we got, we got a powerful episode on Tuesday. Powerful episode on Tuesday. Um, it's our 400th, and we're doing something unique on Tuesday. So check that out, a little celebration to some people out there who have been important uh, to this country. I'm going to get out of here. It is, uh, it's in the evening. It's not super late yet, but I'm going to let you know, and I wish that you have a good evening, a good morning, or a good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. And I thank you for connecting with us today. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.